0: Hello, and welcome to Tardigrade Talks. I'm your host, Dr. Jody Samra, and this is a podcast for anyone interested in cultivating greater psychological health, wellness, and resilience. In each episode, I'll share authentic and thought-provoking conversations with inspiring guests, along with evidence-based skills, strategies, and approaches you can use to cope with the stresses of life and enhance your personal and workplace resilience. I am thrilled to share with you a profoundly heartwarming guest, Victoria Maxwell. Victoria is an award-winning keynote speaker and performing artist who regularly shares her story of mental illness and recovery. Her keynote presentation, That's Just Crazy Talk, has been endorsed by the Mental Health Commission of Canada as one of the top anti-stigma interventions that creates lasting shifts. And her plays, keynotes, and other efforts have won or been nominated for over 14 awards. Through her personal experiences with bipolar disorder and psychosis, Victoria has found an incredibly effective way to inform, educate, and offer practical, effective tools for flourishing mental health to many individuals, both personally and professionally. She is well known for making the uncomfortable comfortable and transforms pre-existing beliefs to reduce stigma. We'll be talking about mental illness and strategies to counter the stigma when receiving a diagnosis, what day-to-day self-care truly means and looks like, and how a desire to find someone to identify with paved the way for an impactful keynote speaker and author to expose the realities of mental illness in a raw, authentic, and relatable way. Victoria thank you so much for joining me today it is my real honor to have you as today's guest
1: it's a real pleasure to be here Jody I'm thrilled to be here
0: well let's start with with how you are today
1: I'm good I'm really good considering the circumstances with you know in the world
0: um yeah I am I'm well yeah we are certainly living in very Strange and interesting times, aren't we? Yes, yes yeah, and having we are. having good days these days is a, is a pretty good thing, I think, for all of us. Oh yeah, just getting through. That's that's <laughs> the, that's the aim, right? Just getting through. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, Victoria, let's start about your um, kind of passion for sharing your story about mental health. Um, following your diagnosis of bipolar disorder um, at the tender age of twenty five, um, a large part of your passion in became surrounded by the need to increase conversations about mental health in an attempt to reduce the stigma that surrounds it. You regularly perform plays, write, and talk very openly about mental health with the hoped-for impact of creating safe and honest environments to do so. Now tell me what led you to create such a platform around reducing mental health stigma and to take this approach of Openly sharing what are very personal and intimate experiences?
1: Uh, it's a great question and I think there's there's two really two answers and The most important one and the one that's probably closest to my heart is because I was diagnosed many years ago 1991 and at the time I um, there were very few people talking about their personal stories. There were sort of some celebrities, um, Margot Kidder, some people might remember were t- talking about their story, um, other celebrities, and then also tragic stories in the media, um, people who have maybe fallen through the cracks and and uh, didn't get the help that they needed. And so I didn't see any person that I could identify with that I call sort of the, the Joe Blow um, you know, garden variety of mental illness. And so it was really, uh, I don't know. I I felt really alone and I wanted to see my face reflected. And I felt in some ways, if I could open up and share, maybe other people would open up and share their experiences. And so that, it was coming out of a vacuum, I think, because there was such a dearth of stories as opposed to now where there's hundreds, if not thousands of people sharing their stories. And then the second one was at the time when I finally had sort of gotten back on my feet, um, got a semblance of recovery. I was working at an office job and My previous life was as an actor before that. And I was really not just craving something creative, but I really needed to do something creative. So my go-to was acting or writing. And so I just started writing a story about my own experience. And then those two things sort of combined. um, And lo and behold, there was a disability arts festival. And I decided to put an application in to see if I could present part of uh, my, at that time, it was sort of an extended monologue. And that's really where the genesis of it started.
0: Oh, wonderful. And as you're speaking, I'm hearing both need right um and an outlet and so we you know we know necessity breeds invention doesn't it and so and and that relatability for i mean any any challenging experience that we go through whether it's a physical health or an emotional health issue when we don't have as you're saying that average person right that we can relate to that we can look to that can help us make sense of things that are at times so nonsensical in our brains Yeah. And
1: that and I think that really was what it was. It was a combination
0: of I was still needing to make sense
1: of it and and have it have a purpose in my life other than just sort of unraveling my life. And uh, I that that sense of connection when I did share with people and this I was doing this was sort of early, early before I actually was going to conferences and sharing. But when I did share and then people would come up to me and say, that's what I've gone through. You just told my story, and there's just a kinship that happens. And then any shame that I had, and this is, I think this is where it's it's really you know enlightened self-interest on my part, mm-hmm. was that I was sharing it partially because it is as healing for me to share it. And as I wouldn't say necessarily therapeutic because I don't do therapy on stage, but something that I was initially very ashamed of very um, frightened of, confused by, I can now stand up and talk about it in a way that becomes part of my history and part of what makes me the individual that I am with the values that I have, um, with the integrity that I have. And so it becomes something that I can be proud of as opposed to something that I feel like I need to hide. And and that's been an incredible part of my own um, wellness journey.
0: you're talking about shame and we and we think of um you know shame and as Brene Brown talks about kind of one of the most insidious and toxic emotions that we can experience and of course with shame what our urge is is to do is to hide right hide away sweep things under the carpet be silent and in fact we know the antidote to shame is to do the opposite action of that, which is to boldly and, and bravely share those stories that make us, um, you know, having to be raw and vulnerable in in very dramatic ways. But that is is the antidote, isn't it? It, it is. And
1: I can feel it. Uh, I can feel an audience shift as people are having some Aha moments and some revelations of their own. So, even though it's a monologue on my side and I'm sort of speaking all the words, it's still an exchange and a dialogue when I'm doing a a one woman show. And the same thing when I'm having conversations. So, when someone shares with me, there's just, uh, it's like people unburden, and it really is true where we unburden ourselves when we speak our stories and speak our our secrets. And, you know, I think it's a 12 step group that says, you know, we're only as sick as our secrets. And I, I don't necessarily like to think myself as sick but I do feel like I'm as I'm weighed down by my secrets and the stories that I don't share.
0: Yeah. And, and I think so many of us can relate to those experiences, right? That that weight that we carry. And, and lo and behold, don't we learn every single time that when we rip off that Band-Aid and share that thing or things that we're so scared to share about, um, the sky doesn't fall down, does it? No, no, we survive. We survive. And even
1: if it goes wonky or we don't do it perfectly, we still definitely survive. And there's always a learning in it for sure.
0: Yeah. And I'm hearing very early on that you started to, I mean, you see this gap, you know, you, you've got your own experience, you've got that your theater and acting background and you meld these two together. And it sounds that things started to get a life of their own pretty quickly, right? You started to get positive reinforcement. People are yeah. connecting with you. They're coming up with you. And I imagine that really kind of continued to propel things forward for you. It, it, it
1: totally did. It really, I had no intention and no idea. I didn't even know that you could be a keynote speaker as a profession. It was literally a coincidence that I was working as a, a extra on a film set at one point And I was, uh, had been accepted to do this disability arts festival. And then I was talking to a gentleman and he was saying, well, oh, you know, you could probably perform that at mental health conferences. And I went, really? Like for money? (laughs) And and he said, Oh, yeah, like you can, people do it for money, like, you know, keynote speakers. And you know, I always think it's just keynote speakers, like Anthony Robbins with, you know, the chiclet teeth and all that kind of stuff. Uh I didn't, I didn't think that, you know, it, it, that you could talk about mental health as part of that. And then it did, it really did, and the Disability Arts Festival, you know, I I had said that I had a, a book and that I could do, I could read excerpts and things like that, but I didn't have a book and I didn't have any excerpts at the time, but I just really wanted to share my story. And so I quickly wrote um, a one woman show, got it directed by a friend. Um, I still haven't written that book, but I've written some plays and performed it, and then there were individuals there that were uh, having their own festivals that invited me. I reached out to sort of what I call sort of um, the warm, potentially warm audiences. Um, The Canadian Mental Health Association was a huge supporter of me right from the beginning. The Mood Disorders Association of British Columbia was as well, Um, and then other people, and then it was just word of mouth, and I think because there wasn't Uh, other stories being shared there was such a hunger for it that people just gravitated and it was so new so people really did that and then it just started to evolve and I started getting requests to go down to the states and uh, so I didn't really have to do a lot to create this business and I am definitely not by nature a businesswoman or entrepreneur but I am just sort of it was baptism by fire and I just sort of happened to (laughs) to learn about it. (laughs)
0: Well, as many of us experience, right, in all kinds of parts of our life, it's often that, that very first step that we take, right, that we think, oh, my goodness, and, and oh, yeah. that imposter syndrome that comes oh, up and yeah. yeah, all the things that tell us, oh, my goodness, there's no way I can be good enough, smart enough, funny yeah. enough, this enough, and yeah. and that you just took that leap of faith and and the sky didn't fall down and, no. and lo and behold, there was this, um, you know, beautiful, I mean, market, right? And that doesn't even really capture it, but this hunger and appetite for you addressing something that we still do a pretty crummy job of speaking in open and honest and vulnerable ways. Yeah. I've seen changes, but there's still a
1: long way to go.
0: Now, you, of course, um, speak for the intended outcome of reducing stigma, but let me ask you, Victoria, kind of over the years and, and in particular, kind of early on in your diagnosis, what were your experiences with stigma and, and how did you navigate those? Um, I think, I mean, the, the one... Area that probably was the most
1: problematic was my own sort of internalized stigma. So my self-stigma, that I, the ideas that I had about what it meant for me, and that's what created the most barriers. I, I think I was quite fortunate. I had a psychiatrist that was su- super supportive and did really good therapy as well as good pharmacology. And my parents were very um, supportive. And I lost a few friends. Um, I think it was because they were frightened, uh, and they probably saw me in states where I was quite manic in that bipolar phase where I was very euphoric and exuberant and grandiose ideas and, um, veering on that strange sort of behavior. And that, that is, you know, unnerving for the best of us, um, and so it was unfortunate that I'd never had a chance to sort of reconnect and let them know what was going on. Um, so that, I think that was probably one of the, the hardest things was losing some friendships and then somehow uh, overcoming the, the stigma that I had about myself, which I thought would be that I will always live at home with my parents, which I was living, I had to move back home uh, with my mom and dad. I didn't know what kind of work I would do. I assumed that it wasn't going to be work that I loved. Um, I didn't know if I'd ever find someone to be partners with for life or even just for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there was all these different kinds of things. And um, that was and then I think just the fear that I would never actually recover or like get back on to my feet where I was managing my conditions well. And uh, so those were those were the biggest ones, and the, the solutions to them really came with partially my own hard work, but with that, the support of many, many good practitioners. So I feel like I'm really standing on the, the shoulders of a lot of other people, and I think that's probably another reason why I share my story is so that people who are struggling, family members who have a loved one who are struggling, know that you know the road may be hard and it may be long, but there is recovery at the end of it and even within it you know even if you know it gets you know just like any kind of recovery it's not a straight line it's not linear um but that doesn't mean that it still can't get better and better. And,
0: Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, you're talking about that, that hopelessness, which is such a, such a hallmark feature, isn't it? Of many mental, mental health conditions where the future seems bleak. It's hard to imagine, right? Fill in the blanks, having a partner, having kids, having a job, having friends. And, and so easy to, to spiral downwards when we're feeling overwhelmed, with the weight of the world. Um, and of course don't have an objective physical something that people can see, right. The same way we see a broken leg or, or, um, I mean, you know, really candidly the way we respond to other physical health issues, like a cancer or heart disease, even things we can't visualize, but we have a different frame of understanding around. Well, yeah. I mean, when I was in the,
1: the psychiatric ward, I had maybe two visitors other than my parents, and no cards and no flowers. And that's, that's the thing that I think is so strange that people are still uncomfortable with sort of, do we say, I hope you get better soon, or, you know, like, but it's really, it's just like, think, knowing that someone's thinking of me outside of the, this, you know, hospital um, environment that I was in. And, um, and and then I, and I want to also acknowledge that I know a lot of people haven't had great experiences within the hospital system itself. And, and I was pretty lucky. Um, There was a couple times in emergency where outright where I heard, you know, nurses call me the crazy woman, you know, I was running around the emergency ward and they said, catch the crazy woman. And it might have been shorthand for them. But even though I was in a psychosis, I was still really lucid, I was able to hear them. And um, those, I mean, I'm sure they were under resourced and overworked and really tired. but. Uh, it, it can be quite a dehumanizing experience, for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and it so speaks, um, doesn't it, to the the kindness and compassion. I mean, one is that I just believe we need to give out in life, irrespective yeah. of situations. Yeah. But but certainly when we're in our most overwhelming moments, and and um, that those inadvertent comments, right, made by the nurse or the care worker or whatever person may be, again, managing their own set of whatever issues they are, but they're not – irrelevant, right? And and they can really be imprinted on your mind, can't they? Well yeah, because that's the thing is that as much
1: I remember both the really good and the really bad. So this happened over, you know, almost 30 years ago and I still remember the experience. But at the same time I remember when I was picked up by police that this officer who was so kind and you know wrapped me in a blanket Gently led me, you know, to the car to sit down, and she was speaking softly, and she was trying. To, I could, I could feel that she was trying to make me comfortable. And then the way that the ambulance workers, you know, really were treating me like a, an individual, and you know, um, asking me questions, looking me in the eye, like all those things, I remember, and um, they, it still, it still moves me because I know that if it had been different. Um, I would have had a very different, uh, I think, um, trajectory of my recovery process. It would have been a lot harder for me to even begin to trust the, the medical system, and I had a hard enough time anyway.
0: 2020. Of course, we have seen so much focus on the intersection between law enforcement and and mental health. And if you think of, you know, if you could wave that magic wand and and impart one piece of advice to every frontline worker or first responder who is dealing with somebody who's in the midst of an acute um, mental health crisis, what would be your one wish? I I would
1: ask them to imagine that it's a loved family member and how they would want to have that family member be treated so it still may be about you know they need to keep themselves safe but really about de-escalating calming it's like when you if you have a person who's yelling you don't yell back to calm them down Um, you don't point things at them Um, there's there's a a way of being able to relate to a person in a way that despite the strange, potentially aggressive. Um, and I want to use that very sparingly because it's, that's what we hear about, but usually it's just people who are really, really frightened and demonstrating unusual behavior that an individual is still there. And, um, I know from my own experience, even in the midst of a really acute psychosis, I was still aware of how I was being treated. And so that kind of respect and that kind of respectful energy, uh, even when you need to be firm, setting boundaries, really goes
0: a long, long way. Very important advice. And as you're saying, even 30 years later, some of these experiences, of course, are imprinted, right? You won't remember the date or the name or the But but we remember how we're treated. And when we're we're seen as people, and I and I think your advice of see that person as a loved one. We we it cultivates a compassion and and place of coming from a place of understanding when we can do that. And I think it's very important for us to talk about the connection between mental illness and violence. Um, now you may not know this, Victoria, but I actually um, have a specialty in forensic psychology. So way 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 back when, um, once upon a time, I, I used to work in um, federal and provincial corrections, including federal maximum security right. um, um, prison, and you know media we love them and yep, and, yep, and yep, you yep. know and, and don't want to bash the media either but but the media is so critically important in terms of shaping our perceptions and every ounce of research data will tell us that on balance risk of violent act perpetration by someone with a mental health issue is lower yes. <laughs> lower than the average person right and and in fact when we you know walk into a federal prison um we see other traits right psychopathy sociopathy antisocial personality disorder and those are the linkages to violence and and i imagine this must be something that for you has been maddening over the years right oh yeah rails
1: yeah yeah, especially well yeah because even in in you know in quotes really good movies or really good books oftentimes the sort of the 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 enemy of the in the the storyline has some kind of underlying mental illness, and so uh, the perpetrator becomes equated with mental illness, and it it really does. and And then I think it does injustice for the families that are grappling with individuals who are uh, with dealing with sort of chronic severe mental illness and need the help. Uh, and and we sort of we need to talk about the both of those sides where there's experiences of it, but where there but also not not um, glamorizing it as well, and not mm-hmm. uh, and like you said, where where the vast majority is is connected to other other aspects.
0: Yeah. With, you know, when we think about the extended um, social support systems that we have, right, our families, our friends that are like family, our work families, um, you know, often people don't know what to say. And, and you know, and and I'll often in my corporate talks, you know, talk about the, you know, the employee that has a heart attack. My goodness, we send cards, we let them know if Jane's in the office is pregnant. We bake a lasagna. We do all of these things, right. To connect with that individual. Yet when it comes to mental health, it's like crickets. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. And, and that's the thing is that, uh, if I saw anything, I think it was the mood disorders association that had a great initiative and it was about, um, they brought uh, a daisy, like a, a Planted daisy and a card to people who were newly admitted to the psych ward, just um, to let people know that they were thinking of them, and I think that's that's really important, and to normalize it as 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 part of. Um, A continuum of what we all deal with you know we deal with the death of a loved one we deal with mental health conditions we deal with broken arms and um strokes and heart attacks and like weddings and all this kind of stuff and there and i think when we don't um give it the attention it's it's due then that's how that's how shame builds up and how stigma builds up and myths start to arise and they proliferate and all that kind of stuff
0: you know the research scientist in in me will say statistics don't lie. And we know the World Health Organization, of course, an organization that every single one of us now knows about, um, declared several years ago mental health issues as being the leading cause of worldwide disability. Um, um, Second is everything cardiovascular related. Um, And we know, we look at the data, right? We can look at disability data, long-term leaves, et cetera. We know that the vast majority of costs and impacts in disability are are accounted for by mental health issues. And, and every single year, one out of five of us would conservatively meet criteria for one of the most common mental health issues, right? Anxiety or depression. We know by the time we're age 40, that 40% of us will. Um, by lifetime, we know it's at least 50%. Um, and as I say, you know, any one of us, we live long enough and we go through enough life experiences, we are going to deal with psychological health issues. Just the vast majority of us won't come see somebody like me in an office and receive that diagnosis.
1: And that's it. And then, And that's, I guess, I feel like where I hopefully fit in is that I'm sort of an icebreaker where people can start, because a lot of my one-person shows, there's a lot of, surprising, there's a lot of comedy in it, um, and my own experience, and ideally what it is is getting people really comfortable asking any kinds of questions, and so, because I feel like some of those stats are driven by the fact that people aren't talking about it, so they aren't reaching out for help because they don't feel comfortable talking about it to get the help that they need and so being able to at least have someone in front of them that maybe you know i i have come through it's sort of almost the messages uh the medium is the message where you know the fact that i'm standing on a stage and i'm coherent and you know i look like i you know fairly healthy and things like that and I, I make them laugh, and maybe they even want to be my friend, <laughs> and uh, and so it you know it 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 equalizes a lot of things, and sort of gives us a common ground from starting, and hopefully it allows people to sort of feel like oh okay
0: maybe maybe it's not a maybe I can actually start talking about it. Well, and, and we know the vast majority of people, um, you know, don't reach out not because they're bad people or have malintent, but they. Don't want to hurt the person suffering. They don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to somehow worsen it. Um, and I guess first question there is: Do you think not asking questions is more helpful or harmful? Like, if someone doesn't have the perfect words, right? Is it right. is it better to zip it up and not say anything, or I, you know? I think it's all about the context.
1: And I think if someone, for myself, um, I would rather have somebody um, awkwardly ask me something um, than not say anything at all uh, because then it becomes almost like the elephant in the room and it becomes even more uncomfortable. And I think if, if I knew someone that was really just very much struggling and hadn't really been too open about it with me I would even just start with you know a simple hey you know how are you I'm, I'm thinking of you uh, versus going into more detailed you know questions but for myself as I've gotten um, I guess because i am spoken about it I love getting questions I love getting any kind of questions I mean I don't know if there's there's probably some questions that are like out of bounds, but mostly then I can just say those are out of bounds. Okay. You so, know?
0: So, well, on this note, you were recently featured in a, in a really cool CBC docu-series called You Can't Ask That, uh, which looks at is at this exact topic. And in each episode, a, a group of individuals with different disabilities are asked to respond um, honestly to the awkward, inappropriate, yeah. or uncomfortable questions that we hear. And so, you know, my question for you is, is there an off-limits question? It, it, and what are those, right? Like what, what falls in that off limits category? Um, well, I, and the th- this is the thing is that I guess
1: because of the work that I do, I feel like it's part of my job and it's what I'm passionate about. So if if somebody, I think the thing that is off limits for me is when someone makes a joke, even, you know, trying to sort of, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge about me or about something of, you know, trying to make some kind of humorous remark somehow, uh, about a mental illness, uh, but they don't have a mental illness that's off limits. Mm. So it's not really a question. It's sort of, to me, it's that's, that's common sense. It's like, if you're Italian, you can make jokes about being Italian. If you're not Italian, you can't make jokes about being Italian. Um, and so, and sometimes people who have mental illness, they don't want to have jokes about mental illness either and so it's it's it varies for me humor is as a big um equalizer and but in terms of questions I don't know I mean I've had uh you know I mean if it's if it's just someone that's you met me for the first time at a social gathering then probably you know did I not have, you know, did you not have children because you have bipolar disorder would probably be inappropriate. But I'd say that that person is just has really bad social skills.
0: <laughs> right, That's called lacking emotional intelligence. <laughs> yes,
1: yes, yes, exactly. But in like Q&A and things like that, if people are saying, you know, you know, would you have kids, or did you have kids, or are you on medication, or you know? I think it's when yeah. there's a snideness to it. There, there was one experience where I had, I was being, I was in a, a van that was going to a hotel uh, from an airport, and the air airplane crew was there, and the captain was there, and he asked what I did for a living, and I told him, I said, I am a mental health speaker. I, I do it from sort of the lived experience. I have bipolar disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, and he looked at me, and said, oh are you fixed? (laughs) And I just, and so I just had to sort of reframe it in my head and sort of go, okay, this is, this is a, window of opportunity, right? This is a learning opportunity. And so, you know, I, I tried to say to him, well, you know, it's not so much about cure or not cure, but there's a management about it. And, uh, you know, and it's not really a character flaw. It's not like there's something really broken about me, but, and so, yeah, it was a teachable moment for sure.
0: Yeah. And I imagine that requires sometimes a few deep breaths. And oh, a little, yeah. A little yeah. calming exercise. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it's like saying, oh, okay, well,
1: you know, for sure.
0: Yeah. <laughs> You know, bipolar is one of these conditions where I mean, I think almost everybody gets it wrong. <laughs> they do mm-hmm. not understand accurately no. what bipolar means, and and often the lay interpretation, right? And we hear this all the time in our work environments, at the cocktail party. She's so bipolar, or he's right. so bipolar, and we hear, you know, yeah, my air quotes, if you can hear them through the mic here, right? Yeah. And and uh, people think, oh, it's this moodiness and mobility. and you think, no, 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 this is this is not actually bipolar, and I think ninety nine percent of the time people get it wrong on what the condition is. And and I'd say same with psychosis. And so oh, yeah. when you think of some of the questions that you say, ah, this is really the most common or frequent ones that people just don't understand. Yeah, the um, I think the biggest,
1: definitely I, I agree that people, if they haven't been around bipolar disorder, they don't understand it and certainly not psychosis. So um I guess the, the most heartfelt question that I get uh, is probably from family members who have loved ones uh, who have uh, bipolar disorder and they may go into psychosis. And so that psychosis where, you know, I become out of touch with uh, reality. So I'm seeing things and hearing things and believing things that other people don't see, hear or believe. and And their loved ones, Aren't accepting the help that you know that they need in order, in order to be well, and I think that's also the hardest to answer because there is no easy answer. Um, there's about support, and you can't change someone. They need to, potentially, if they're, uh, specifically, if they're an adult child. So I think those are the heartfelt questions, like, how do you help someone like that? And so I can only speak from my own experience of, you know, what my parents did, what my friends did, what my health professionals did, and what, what led me to, uh, sequence of choices that led me to a decision to accept the conditions and accept treatment. Mm. Um, And so that was, though that one I think was uh, probably one of it. And also um, people who are really curious about what does it mean to be psychotic? Because I think Mm. uh, people equate psychotic with violence. Right. And um, I was actually in a very euphoric, happy state. I was just not really playing by the rules of this world. I mm. ran down the street naked and I, you know, was looking for God and uh, wasn't, you know, doing the things that other people were doing. Right. Um, and and when I tell people that it's, it's more like, I like to call it a non-shared reality because mm. the reality that I'm in is that I really believe that God is going to be around the corner in that laurel bush And in my mind, I need to be naked because that's the way he made me. In quotes, Mm he made me and all that kind of stuff. So that's my logic. And it's as real to me as someone walking down the street who needs to catch the bus at 210. And it's 205 and they're four blocks away and they have to run. So those kinds of things, um, I really appreciate people being really curious about those those kinds of aspects about it, because I feel like that kind of understanding
0: then breeds compassion. Mm. Well, and it's it's um, the intent and the delivery, isn't it, of any yeah. question that you think? I mean, really, I mean, I mean, we can say the words. I love you with despise in our voice. And and similarly, we can say the words, I hate you in a playful, fun mood, right? And we know it's it's not just the words or the question. It's the intent behind it. It's the delivery. It's um, if we're coming from that place of kindness and compassion that, you know, almost anything we can put on the table um, if we can really see that person in front of us for who they are. Uh, and that and that's the biggest thing is I think when people have a genuine curiosity
1: and they're not defended and they're not judgmental and they're asking in sincerity i love I, I love that because to me, a person is open to learning. And then of course, some people have been through really difficult experiences with loved ones and their own experience if they've been diagnosed with it through the medical system. And so oftentimes people are angry, they are frustrated, they are judgmental and they have really strong opinions. And I think those need to be honored just as as much Mm
0: -hmm. um, and be welcomed with the compassion that I'm looking for when people are asking me questions absolutely and not making assumptions right yeah, and yeah. we all know when we assume yes, 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 <laughs> what so result For a bit, and talk about the intersection and role that that art and um, acting has played in your life. And so, if we go back and and uh, even prior to your initial diagnosis of bipolar disorder, um, you were an actress back in the '90s, um, uh, playing supporting roles across uh, uh, actors that we'll all recognize, such as X Files' David Duchovny, John Travolta, and my personal little favorite that I had a crush on, Johnny Depp. Oh yeah. Uh, And uh, (laughs) I mean, my goodness, what an incredible experience and so um, you you know tell us more about this part of your life and how it shaped and developed your skills and abilities to perform so well today on on dramatically different topics. Yeah I feel like
1: it it was almost um, serendipity and or how I don't know what what it was but uh, my passion from a very young age was always uh, acting and um, so I got training at UBC and uh started acting and got mostly television and film parts and so i was my career was cut short very quickly you know i had maybe four or five years and then i was diagnosed but i think what both the training that i got and the experience in the industry and also just the ability to act in a film set in particular really gave me good skills to be on stage stage, to capture people's attention, to engage them, to know how to tell a story. and, and also to be an entrepreneur, like being an actor and also just being on set, you're dealing with a lot of spinning plates and many of them are falling. <laughs> and <laughs> so as, as any entrepreneurs out there listening, you know what it's like when you're having to keep, you know, you've got many hats on, you've got many balls in the air and you've got many plates spinning and you're hoping none of them drops and inevitably one or two do. And um, and so that, I, that experience of being an actor and trying to stay afloat financially and and also being in a very chaotic experience with on set when there's so many things going on um, helped me um, on the business side of it. Um, but I'm really, I'm just incredibly grateful for the fact that when I had a passion for acting and the training that I got that allowed me to not have to sort of worry or work at too much uh, on my stage skills because they were sort of already my foundation it was more or less um, my business skills but also just the the courage to keep Uh, going into new, uh, to speak to new audiences, because some audiences were easy to speak with, because I knew that I was speaking their language. Other audiences who aren't as familiar with mental illness, those are the ones that I'm still, I get really nervous when i'm speaking because i know i'm not preaching to the choir
0: mm. so you do still get nervous when you're on oh, stage god yes. yeah i don't know i get
1: nervous all the time i got nervous for this
0: podcast did you oh my god i have totally, I mean, nothing
1: to be nervous about i oh, know <laughs> i know i know it's just it's just i don't know if it's just performance
0: anxiety or whatever it's just i have an anxiety disorder yeah <laughs> so. well it's a positive reframe right if we're like Absolutely. oh those butterflies are Absolutely. i mean i'm excited that's it right that's right way. exactly
1: that's what I always say and I, ca- I care so much that that's why I'm nervous and stuff. Yeah. And, so, and so and I don't get bothered by it anymore like it's just I just know and I know it's like I have my, it's like I'm sure hockey players have their rituals and stuff I have my rituals about you know people say oh you don't need to rehearse you've been doing this for you know 20 years or whatever and I go no
0: I still rehearse I still rehearse yeah, okay. it's a script you know it's it's what I do and stuff so yeah yeah well it's, it's controlling the controllable right when we can that's just um, totally. th- those routines and rituals I mean they're they're massive right? In in sports is a fantastic example because there's so many superstitious um, yeah. rituals and yeah. sometimes our brain knows that they're not going to do anything in particular, but we go no, through them. I know it's it's totally the same thing. And you know, like I had a friend who was
1: speaking for the very first time, and he was ex- really really nervous and understandably so. And then I said, "Well, do you know um, what the room looks like, or do you know you know are you going to have a microphone handheld?" He said, "No, I don't know." And I said. You have total freedom to ask those questions, like under, just understanding all the things that you need to know. And that'll start to at least bring down some of the unknowns because it's all the unknowns that make people nervous. I mean, COVID uncertainty is like, the, you know, it's now a thing. <laughs>
0: so it's right. Like, well, well, uncertainty and unpredictability, right? And as I say, we don't want to yeah. do away with our anxiety in in situations that are out of our control or unpredictable. Um, because our anxiety is serving a function, right? Yeah. It propels us to do something different or it validates something important to us about about our life. Now, your keynote theatrical performance, That's Just Crazy Talk, is highly successful and has led the Mental Health Commission of Canada to um, endorse the performance as one of the top anti-stigma interventions that creates lasting shifts. And I don't just mean anecdotal. I mean, from a research end that you have demonstrated that there's shifts. Um, And this, this highly acclaimed presentation follows you as you face your... Uh, mental illness within yourself and within your family. Um, this piece of art is is a funny and, and sometimes painfully truthful representation of, of the amount of love and resilience required to keep a family together in the face of mental illness. Um, I, of course, have had the, the honor of seeing you deliver this um, to a room full of hundreds of people. And I'll tell you, you know, my goodness, the the audience, you captivate the audience and, mm-hmm. and just so impactfully touch everybody in some way. What was the process of creating this piece of art like for you and in, in that journey? And and were there ever parts where you thought, oh my goodness, I'm going way too intimate or way too into details? It, uh, it was probably the
1: hardest um, play to write. And and generally, they usually, I know exactly what I'm going to be writing, and I knew what I wanted to write about. And this, the, it, was, uh, it started because I was working with a research group that wanted to study if a theater piece could be an intervention to reduce stigma. And so all they told me is that, just write a piece about stigma and they didn't say anything else, which is really liberating for an artist and a writer. Um, And I knew that I hadn't talked about my family background. So I think the most difficult part was probably writing about um, being a child of someone who had a mental illness or Mm. has a mental illness and discovering some secrets within my family about those who have mental illness in my family. And it was a combination of also, I'm writing about people who are still living, So that was a bit uncomfortable. And also just going back to some of the memories, because there was some bullying that I went through and there was some sort of uh, trauma. And I didn't, I don't talk about it specifically necessarily in the show, but as a, as a, in the writing process, you know, I had to sort of filter through what memories do I, are important to the story that I need to put on paper. And so that, that was probably part of it. Um, And then some of it was really, really liberating because I hadn't shared Uh, these experiences and I wanted to talk more directly about the stigma that some of my family members experienced uh, in later in earlier generations and some of the uh, experiences that I've had um, and then also the hopeful parts of what allowed people to really set themselves free and how they how myself and and others really became comfortable with themselves so um it was uh, it was quite a uh, it was a journey it didn't take uh that long usually when i know of a play that i want to write i've already had it in my head for quite a while so it doesn't take that long to write um and it just sort of i have to pace myself because uh more or less if there's an emotional area that i just have to make sure that I've got my self-care in place and have Mm -hmm. tissues and have some sort of hours of time to buffer me so I don't have to, you know, go into a a meeting or anything right away.
0: Yeah, well, well, a beautiful segue into the things that you do on a consistent and regular basis with respect to self-care and management Um, you know when we think of enhancing our resilience right it's it's not a one-time thing it's a it's a whole bunch of micro actions that we take again and again and again and again and so victoria what is on your list of the top things that keep you well and healthy psychologically emotionally physically Mm, I I really love that question because I and I
1: I would like self-care to sort of have a term maybe a a more official term because self-care I think still has the the connotations of bubble bath which it can be a self-care but I think it's 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 a far more important um, tool or you know uh, an umbrella of tools because it really does keep us well and resilient and able to be the people we need to be for those around us and, and, and to live a thriving kind of life. So for myself, there's the basics that I have to do that a good parent tells their kids to do, I I need to get outside, I need to breathe fresh air, get, you know, light, even if it's cloudy outside, Uh, exercise, Um, I practice mindfulness and meditation. Um, And then there's some other ones that uh, and sleep, sleep is a huge one, having a good sleep routine. So I, if I'm not, if I'm getting more than nine hours of sleep or less than seven hours for any period of time, I know that I can be in trouble. And I know for parents out there, some people are rolling their eyes and, oh my God, if I get like more than five hours of sleep, I'm lucky. (laughs) So I know that's not always possible. Um, And, but one of the other things that I found is looking at my financial health. And so keeping on top of, you know, what's going on financially, because it's a, it's a huge trigger for me. And I really see that the stress, if I let certain stressors build up, that's a potential for uh, symptoms to start to build as well. So, you know, looking at my, you know, Uh, balances, bills, all that kind of stuff on a regular basis as part of my self-care as well. Um,
0: well, I, I love that you bring that up. I mean, the statistics tell us a, a third of adults experience chronic financial stress. And and we know that has massive impacts on um, our mood, on our sleep, on our levels of anxiety. And and what do we do? We move into good old land of denial, right? And we avoid. And when we avoid the things that are creating stress, unfortunately, it kind of builds up counterintuitively rather than just going away. And so, um, yeah, I, I really appreciate you you sang that and and I so echo your comments about self-care, right? We think, yes. oh, bubble baths and pedicures and all these luxurious things that we're sitting around eating bonbons, right? And yes. and that is not self-care. Like no, <laughs> and, no. and I agree with you on, you know, it it is self-care is hard, right? To do yes. the things that Require us to engage in the healthy eating or go out on that cold, yeah. rainy day when it's yeah. the last thing we feel like doing. And especially if we're struggling with our mood, right? Well, that, oh, and that's the thing is that if people are struggling with depression, like when I'm
1: struggling with depression, the last thing I want to do is go for a walk. And so it's really, and so to me, self care isn't necessarily a special occasion kind of thing. It is something that I need to be doing on a consistent basis that keeps me well. And for me, the the advantage is that if I don't do it, I my butt gets kicked really quickly and I start to go down a, a steep slope really fast. Mm-hmm. Other people can sort of manage not to do self-care for a while and still sort of be okay. I, on the other hand, can't. And and the two other things I've learned re- really recently, because I actually went into quite a, a deep depression and um, had a lot of anxiety uh, several months ago, um, was that I was reminded about being able to do something that I can feel like I've accomplished something. So get a sense of self-efficacy or mastery every day. So it might only went on a really sort of bad day. It might be just one thing and then something pleasurable that I can look forward to. And so even if I'm really severely depressed, it might have to be something that I used to find pleasurable. And so it, and I know it's part of behavioral activation, but it's been such a godsend for me to remember just those two simple things mm-hmm. that if I can do one thing that I know that I'm, I feel proud of or that it feels accomplishment, and that might be just taking a walk. Um, it could be sending an email and then something that I might enjoy doing. And it might be just reading one page of a book or something. And um, and then, of course, as, I, as I'm as i well, then those things, things just become more... Uh, easily done and I just expand on them.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's going through those emotions, right? When we least feel like it, you know, and as I often say that the time we least feel like going for that walk or engaging in whatever good thing it is that's when we most need to do it yeah. Um, yeah. right and and when we're feeling happy as clams you know what we can stay up a couple extra hours or skip that workout or have an extra glass of wine or whatever it is but when we are struggling in in even you know even small ways with our yeah. psychological health that one of the best things that we can do is make sure we are very rigid with going through the motions of the things that we we do when we feel feel well even though we're not feeling well at that moment and doing
1: it the earlier the better and one of the things that the other self-care is i ensure that i have good social contact so i i have contact with my husband all the time um and that's great and he's an incredible support for me i also need sort of that girlfriend input and i and i know when i go too long without that. I can, if I'm starting to feel something off, oftentimes that's the thing that's gone. And there's something about that social support so that also when I do start to feel that wiggliness of stress or the beginning symptoms or signs, those are the people that can actually help me do the things when I'm just going through the motions, because Mm. sometimes it's just too hard to motivate ourselves.
0: Yeah. And and sometimes we don't want all that pressure on our partner either, do we? Uh Or whoever's in our kind of immediate physical environment because yeah. that that can also be a, a big burden for others to carry. Absolutely. Victoria, it has been such a pleasure um, to speak with you. I so admire your tenacity and your vulnerability and your authenticity in sharing and discussing just such a critically Important topic in such a such an accessible way. You're so relatable. You are again. You can if you can make someone laugh and cry within a few minutes of each other. Uh, yeah. You know, pretty amazing the amount of emotions that you can evoke, and and you truly sincerely touch have touched so many thousands of people certainly you've touched me when I've had the honor of seeing you perform and so I want to thank you and, and commend you for the work that you do um, and as we wrap up I would just love to ask you one final question um, when you think of resilience what does resilience mean to you wow um Well,
1: it's a quote that other people might've heard. Um, but it's, um, the quote, uh, fall town seven, get up eight. And, uh, what I'd probably add to that is that to have hands to hold when we get up, because all of us are going to be knocked down. That's all of us, no matter what, we all are carrying some struggle and, uh, But what the important part is, is that we just need to get back up. And we don't have to get back up gracefully. (laughs) We don't even have to want to get back up. But if we just reach out and have a hand that can hold us, um, to me, that's what really resilience is. Because being human is not always easy. You know, even if you're not dealing with a mental illness, it can be really challenging. And um, I think the more that uh, I accept that there's hard times the easier those hard times become because I sort of know it's part of the human experience and other people are going through it as well.
0: Thank you so much, Victoria, for your, your words of wisdom and your perspectives. Um, and thank you so much to our listeners for tuning into Tardigrade Talks. If you've enjoyed our conversation, we would love for you to subscribe and consider sharing with a friend. We have a breadth of free resources designed to help you enhance your psychological health and wellness on our website, tardigradetalks.com. Thank you, and I hope you join us at the next episode. Wishing you psychological health, wellness and resilience until next time.